Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. If you want to go ahead and begin turning your way there, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, as we continue this study uh, through the book of Colossians. Now, what we're going to see in this is, is pretty interesting, and I think it addresses a number of the things that you're going to recognize both in your life and in those things that you recognize and the lives of those you come into contact with, namely, when, when Christians continue to sin, when we continue to do those things that uh, speak directly against our faith in Jesus Christ, either through our actions, through our attitudes, or through our words. And so Paul is going to move and he's going to address those things and he's going to give us really specific direction for what we should be doing uh, when these things pop up, what we should be doing when these things manifest, when they show themselves. But it's important for us to come into it with a mindset of 3, 1 through 4. Now, 3, 1 through 4, Paul went through and he had two kind of overarching commands. One was to seek the things above. The other one was, was to think on the things above and not the things of the earth. And he, he set this up, he displayed this, and he gave us this framework. And he said, listen, you're going to think on, seek for the things that are above. And when Jesus appears... He's going to show you who you really are. Verse 4 said, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So the picture there is this kind of end of all things, Jesus coming down, and he peels back, and all the junk that was in your life, and all the sin that was in your life is peeled away in a moment, and you stand before him as you really are in him. Holy and radiant. Holy and radiant. If you're united through faith, in Jesus Christ, in principle, you are holy and radiant because that is what God has made you to be. Christ has willingly taken on your sin. He's taken on the wrath of God and he has freed you from the penalty and the punishment of sin. This is who you are and that's what we wait for. Now in the meantime, what in the world are we supposed to do? Well, look at what he says in 5-11. through 11. Let's read. Paul writes and says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. This is this great kind of book it, bookended thing, right? Where when Jesus shows up, he's going to show us for who we really are. So there are those of us who have surrendered our lives, who are living unto Jesus, and when he shows up, he's going to peel back the sky and he's going to reveal us to be holy. And others of us, God's going to peel back the sky and he's going to reveal us to have this thin veneer of holiness, but inside we are lost, we are dead, and we are stuck in sin. And this is what's going to happen in those end deals. And so for those of us who are followers of Jesus and you have submitted your life to him, what do we do in the meantime? You work to grow in holiness. Now this might seem to be to you a little bit counterintuitive. Well, hold on a second. You're telling me that, that there's something I need to do that I actually can become more holy? No, God has given you a requisite amount of holiness, but it is on you to be about the business of making it true of you in how you live your life, what you say, what you do, what you think, how you are, and how you are perceived by those around you. And so the first thing he says is that you need to put 
to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, the Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 6 and verse 11. He says, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this idea of putting to death, it, it should paint for you, it should conjure in your mind this, this devastating picture. It should be violent in some sense. It shouldn't be this kind of, well, you know, I just need to have a, a, a light disdain for sin. I just need to recognize that it's not God's best for me. Uh, but, you know, nobody's perfect, and I'll just continue to live however I can and however I may. No, what does he say here? He says it needs to be dead. All those things in you that are earthly. And then he gives us this list. Now, this, this reminds me, it paints this picture of me of, of kind of a horror movie or a, a thriller, right? When I grew up, I loved to watch these. But when you see them, when you watch a horror movie, there's always this moment, right? Where the bad guy, the villain, the monster or whatever is coming after uh, the character and, 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 and the hero slays the beast and they stand there and at this point they make one of two fatal flaws. They either kiss the girl or they check to make sure it's really dead in timid fashion, Right? So they either kiss the girl and celebrate, and they're like, this is so great, I love you so much, we're alive, we survived, and what's going to happen next? They're going to die. They're going to die. Or they've shot it, they've, they've stabbed it, they've exploded it, or whatever, and they walk over to it, and they're like, yo, I think it's dead. Check it out, take my picture, it's dead! And then they get gobbled by the beast, and they die, right? And so I, I miss this moment as a kid, where you, you see them down, and you're just kind of like, dead, I think it's dead this time. And then it jumps out at them, and they die. But we have this, this indication here that we are to treat our sin in the same way. We are to make sure it is and stays dead. We are to put it to death. Now, if we're to run around the room and to say, uh, sir, could you tell me what things you struggle with and what is your sin habits? You'd, you'd sheepishly stand up and say, well, I struggle with being too generous. I struggle with being too awesome, right? But if we were to take a personal inventory of our hearts and to run through this list, and some of us will see ourselves or, 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 or an image or a reflection of who we are occasionally in this list. Look what he says here. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, culturally, we see this radical move, and we have for some time, not just in this country, but globally, to this idea that it doesn't matter what you do, that these things done in the flesh have no bearing on you. You need to be you. You need to be true to your truth. But what do we see here? These things, these things enumerated and listed are sin. Everybody say, they are sin. And what should we do to sin? We should put it to death. We should put it to death. Now, the difficulty in this is we recognize that what one of the things Paul is not saying is go around and find sin in other people's lives and kill that sin. That's so much more fun. That's so much more fun. It's so much easier, so much better to walk out and say, ah, I see some sin over here in Reagan's life. Let me just stomp it. Let me just cut it. Let me just smash it. Let me just punch her in the face until it's gone. But sin in my own life, well, this is dangerous. This is difficult. This is to announce, this is to recognize weakness in me. This is to, to, to look at these things and say, this thing has a disproportionate uh, ownership of my heart. When we come into contact with these things, when we recognize that, that, that pornographic intake amongst men in the church and women in the church is very similar to what we see outside the church. 
that sexual immorality within the church and to the people of the church is very similar culturally to the people outside of the church. And we ask ourselves, why are these things? How can these things be? It's because we're a people who want to orderly set our sin aside, but we don't actually want to kill it. Because if we kill it, if we slay it, and if we put it to death, it means I can't run back over and pick it up and enjoy it. This is why we have to kill it. This is why if you find yourself addicted to pornography, you cannot do certain things. You cannot go into certain places. This is why if you find yourself addicted uh, to, to various things, you can no longer engage in this practice. You can no longer engage in this manner. Why? Because the instruction here isn't to cordon it off. It's not to set it to the side. It is to kill it. Now, as people of the church, it is our responsibility one to another to help our brothers and sisters to kill it, but it is incumbent, it is necessary for each one of us to take up the axe and to slay the beast ourselves. Now listen, this sounds decidedly difficult, and it sounds hopeless, but it is hopeful in that God has given his spirit to you and given you the ability to rest and trust in him, to be dependent upon his spirit, and in that strength to slay these sins. Whatever is earthly in you, slay it, kill it, make sure it's dead. Make sure it's dead. It's so incredibly important for the church to do this. One, because the church shows, it displays the body of Christ. So that when people see sexual immorality, when they see these deeds of the flesh, evident, thriving, doing well in the church, they say, listen, the church is, is distinctly not all that different from what I see in the world. What it seems to be in terms of difference from the world is that it finds people engaged in these things within its body and it, it ridicules them, it casts them out, and it wants nothing to do with them. So we find ourselves hosed on both sides of this, Right? While we really don't want to deal with these things because dealing with them is going to be difficult and, 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 and we can't do well in these difficult situations. And so when we find them creep up, we just say quietly to the people around us, wouldn't it be better if you found somewhere else to be? Wouldn't it be better if you found somewhere else to go? But what should a church do in the midst of these things? It is upon each of us to put these things to death. And it is upon each of us when we find our brothers and sisters in Christ failing and being put to death by these things... We rush forward with life-saving measures. We rush forward with the grace and mercy of the gospel. We rush forward and we pull them out of these things, extending to them grace, extending to them forgiveness, and pointing to them all the time, look at his cross, look at Jesus. Look at his cross, look at Jesus. He died for this sin. He died for you and he calls you to himself. The holiness which you have on the basis of what Christ did for you is still there for you. And we remind them of that truth. And what is the enemy doing all along? He says, you can't put these things to death because you're still dead. He doesn't want you. You're far off from him. The enemy comes along and it parrots to you and says, these things aren't so bad. You should enjoy them. Everybody in church is. You should continue down this path. The enemy wants to see you entrapped and enslaved to these sinful desires, but God wants to see you set free, and he wants to see us as a church do the same. Amen? So it's going to require difficult conversations for us. It's going to require lovingly rebuking our brothers and sisters, and it's going to require some of us taking a loving rebuke from our brother and sister. That is how they love us, and that is how we live others. 
this is the church he has called us to be. He goes on, he says, it's on account of some of these that the wrath of God is coming. Now, I, I mentioned a moment ago that the enemy will tell you, listen, you're going to receive the wrath of God because you are not truly saved. But 1 Thessalonians 5 and 9 says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation and that through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you can still sin. If you are in Christ, you can still sin, and sin can still have devastating effect on you. But the ultimate wrath of God is not destined for you, and neither are you destined for it. God has taken upon that wrath in the person of Jesus. But that wrath that is coming will find itself being visited upon all those who have not received forgiveness in Christ. This gives us urgency. This gives us a, a, a sense of, of, of mercy and, and wanting to extend the gospel to all those who are living outside of having received it. Amen? Because we see people living out the fullness and, and, experience all, and experiencing all of these things and thinking this is all that life brings. And it is desirable. And it is good. And it is the best on offer. But we come to them with the gospel. We come to them with the forgiveness of God. We come to them offering them something that in many cases people would say, I don't want that. I have no part in that. I don't need that. But look at our backstory. He says it's in these two in which you once walked. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 through 11 said it more explicitly. He said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And the religious among them would say, that's right, they don't get in. And the religious among us would say, that's right, we don't want any part of this. But then he hits them with this wicked cross and he says, and of such were some of you. These swindlers, these idolaters, these sexually immoral, of such were some of you. Whether it be this list or some list of, of immoral activity, all of us see our former manner of existence in such lists. And Paul would come to us and say, once you have received the gift of God through Jesus Christ, of such were some of you, but you are no longer because you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, amen. We have been set free. And as men and women who have been set free, our task and our joy is to go to others who find themselves enslaved and say, come and experience freedom. Come and be set free. Come and experience joy in these you once too walked when you were living in them. This is who we once were. So our story is to be able to go to people and say, listen, I see this manner of existence. I see this life in you. But it doesn't have to be who you are. God's purpose for you is that you would find him. God's purpose for you is that you would find redemption in him. God's purpose for these acts is not what you have made them to be. You are enslaved to this sin. Let me set you free by extending to you the grace and mercy at the hand of Jesus. He says we're to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. His second command in verse 8 says, but you must now put them away. Other translations say put off, kind of take this clothing off. 
But now you must put them away, all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. A number of years ago, I had an opportunity to uh, attend this poverty simulation down in Waco, which should have been my first sign not to go. But nevertheless, I'm down in Waco, and this family has this, this setup where you, you go through, and, and they want you to understand what it's like to be homeless. So you'll have a better heart for the homeless, so that you'll be able to minister to them more effectively. So you go in, and, and they don't tell you any of this stuff before you get there, but you walk in the door, and they say, okay, you get three things. You get three things. And I'm like, what? what? And they're like, listen, your, your undergarments don't count, but you get three things. And so I, for whatever reason, kept a toothbrush. I wanted to be a dentist at that point, so that seemed like a great idea. But I had to, I had to exchange all other clothing, and so they took you down to a Goodwill, and, and I put on... <laughs> I put on short pants. Uh, they didn't have pants long enough for me at that point with a small enough waist and a belt counted as an option. So I put on short pants that came just kind of Capri. I lived in Europe, so I decided to work it. And so I put those on, and I got some super uncomfortable shoes, and, and I had a shirt. It was a pearl snap shirt, two sizes too small. It said Dawn right there. I still have it if anybody wants it. And so, and you spend two or three days, and, and they don't give you enough money to sleep inside every night. They don't give you enough money to eat every meal. And so I'm kind of going through this, and I am stanky. I mean, it's summertime in Waco, which is a gross place to be anyway. And, and on top of this, my pearl snap see-through Dawn shirt was skin tight and transparent by the end of this time. And so I'm just kind of walking around, you know, shirt stuck to me and, and made it through the end of this time. And I had an option. We're, now, we're getting ready to go on our, our, our mission trip. This isn't the mission trip. This is the precursor to the mission trip. We're getting ready to go on this time. And the option is, I can leave on these clothes. Or I can cast them off. And everybody that encountered me, my clothes communicated something about me. I didn't have great style. I wasn't a huge fan of bathing. And I was definitely out of place. And so the first opportunity I got, I took a shower. I reached for new clothes. I grabbed them and I put them on. And if I had come in here today wearing this Dawn shirt that by now certainly doesn't fit, you'd have said, he is out of place. His clothing is out of place. Sin in the life of a Christian it's out of place and doesn't fit. But some of us, we find our sins and we go in and we say, listen, I'm going to take this, I'm going to put it on a hanger, and I'm going to hang it in the closet. I'm going to take it down when it's convenient. When somebody makes me angry, I'm going to take down wrath, I'm going to put it on, and I'm going to unload. When somebody deserves something to, to warrant my anger, I'm going to take it down out of the closet, I'm going to put it on, and I'm going to give my anger to them. And conservative Christians are excellent at this. And we're even better at justifying our actions and excusing our sinfulness. And during this time of quarantine, some of us have decided to pursue physical health. Other, others of us have gone a different direction. But too many of us, too many of us have sharpened our swords in displaying our anger with our words, our attitudes, and our actions. And we brandish them in a moment's notice. And we shred everybody that comes into conflict and contradiction with our worldview and with our opinions. And 
We care nothing for the casualties we leave and the people we maim. And it's got to stop. We see it across denomination. You see it across ethnicity. You see it globally. And we read this list. And he says, put these things away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. But too many of us are really just waiting for a moment and an opportunity for what we think justifies our behavior. For who we think rises to the level of, you know what, I could just set them straight. Maybe, maybe the way that some of us are talking is actually an indication that's who you really are. The reason you can't put these things away is because that is who you really are, and that's a much more devastating picture. That's a much more damning reality. I certainly hope that's not the case. That's wrath. There's a way that the people of the church have to speak if we're going to display what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And too many of us have fallen way short of that for too long. Our speech needs to be seasoned with grace. By the way we talk and engage, people should be able to say, he is a Christ follower, she is a Christ follower. People know far too much about our opinions on masks and politics and far too little about our opinions on Jesus and eternal things. I'll tell you to quit it, but I feel like I did that a couple of weeks ago, and some of you aren't getting the message. Stop. Or at least go online and tell people, hey, listen, I'm a Christ follower, but, but I'm going to be disingenuous to that and unfaithful to that. Tell people at least start off and say, let me just sin for a second, and then go about and say whatever it is you have to say. At least that would be honest. But look what he says in verse 9. He says, don't lie to one another. Don't lie to one another. The life of the body is so incredibly important that we would be honest with one another. That we would bear up underneath one another. That when we see people say things and do things, that we would say, listen, I cannot lie to you. What you're doing right now is dishonest. Not that it's an outright lie on what you say, it's your expression of how you're perceiving this experience, but it is nevertheless disingenuous to your faith in Jesus Christ. We can say things that are true and lie at the same time because we're lying to God about who we are and what our hearts are doing. We must be people who engage in the truth. If the gospel's truth, it gets to reign over our hearts and our mouths. Amen? cannot lie to one another. We must call out one another when we say things that are dishonest to the gospel, that aren't honoring to our God. We must submit ourselves to one another, and this must persist over the entirety of of, of the way that we live and what we say and what we post and what we do. This is why he says that we can't lie to one another. It's because we have put off our old self with its practices, and we have put on the new self. Adam and Eve are in the garden. 
And you'll remember the scenario. They go through and they, they sin against God. They eat from the tree of forbidden fruit. And, and they recognize in that moment that they're naked, right? And they're terrified. And so in that moment, they take and they begin to make for themselves uh, a makeshift loincloth. And they do so uh, out of fig leaves. And so in chapter 3 and verse 7 of the book of Genesis, they sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loincloths. They recognized we can't be like this. So you remember God comes down into the garden. He calls for them. They end up having to own their sin. He tells them this is how you will be forgiven. I'm going to send this redeemer and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so in every subsequent generation, they're always looking for this one who would be the hope, who would be the gospel. But before God sends them out into the world, Verse 21, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. They sought to make clothing for themselves, and they failed God, slayed an animal, and he clothed them before he sent them out. We have been sent out into the world again, and we no longer wear a beast that God has slain, but we wear his son. And we have been clothed in Christ's righteousness. And when we wear the righteousness of Christ, we have to moderate our behavior so that our behavior is becoming of those who are dressed in the holiness of Christ. This is how he has sent us out. This is what we have been clothed with. We must discard those things, those those articles of clothing, our anger and our wrath. We must make sure that we have put to death our former manner of existence. Sexual immorality, impurity, and our passion. Then he tells us, he says, this new self is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Now the good news for the Christian who finds themselves guilty, which is all of us on any given day, is that God is not finished with you. When you fly off the handle, when you fall back into your former manner of sin, and when sin looks to be winning the battle that the enemy is waging against your soul, what we see in this is this terrific reminder that God is the one who is renewing us in the knowledge after the image of its creator. God who has instituted the church, who has made it to be the body of Christ and and, and put it in submission to the head, Jesus Christ, he and he alone is renewing it. And we can find ourselves submitting to this act of renewal and submitting ourselves to the act of God in in the movement of his son in stirring up and making us who he has fashioned us to be, men and women who boldly declare God's goodness, men and women who are recipients of his grace, men and women who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. God is renewing. So what this means for some of us is that we need to once again bow our hearts before the Lord and say, I've been seeking to do it on my own, and I've been failing miserably. I've been lying to those around me about my failures. I've been lying to those about me about my attitudes, and I need your renewal. We cannot renew ourselves, that's religion. We cannot make ourselves holy, that's legalism. But if we will submit ourselves to him, he will lead us to slay our former sins. To put off those things that entrap us. And look at what he's going to make us all to be in verse 11. 
Speaking of this church, this, this, this body that he is making, he says, Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. Just recognize that God is not primarily saying, Listen, I'm going to make you all look the same. I'm going to make you all act the same. I'm going to make you all be the same. So he's taking these these disparate groups. He takes Jew and Gentile, and he says these groups that are opposed, and we see this in the book of Ephesians, where Paul says they are made one in the death of Jesus. And then he moves on, and he says, listen, you you don't just have them. You have those who have taken the covenant of circumcision, those who haven't. You have those who are barbarians. So Greeks would look around and say that anybody who does not speak Greek is a barbarian. And this word comes because they said when anybody else spoke, it sounded like bar, 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 bar. sounded like Jar Jar Binks. And so they said, listen, these people are barbarians. And he says, then you have the Scythians, these people who lived just north of the Black Sea, who were enslaved across the Roman Empire. The lowest of the slaves, he says, you have slave and free. So he takes this disparate group of people with different cultural backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, and he says, they are all in Christ. Because Christ is all. And he is in all. So we see this radical statement of how God is bringing us all into his image. He is conforming all of humanity into his image. He paints in beautiful and diverse colors and images. But we all find ourselves being one, not in having the same opinions and the same political persuasions and dressing the same and having the same perspective on whether or not to wear a mask. But we find our unity in the one thing that we can't mess up. We find our unity in Christ. And finding our unity in Christ, who is all and in all, It gives us firm footing. It gives us a place to stand and a place from whence to march out. Someday Christ is coming back. Pray to God it would be today to spare us. This is why you see, he says, come Lord Jesus, come soon. When he shows up, he's going to show us for who we really are. Until that time, our job is to put to death our sin, to put away our sin, and to seek to be united in Jesus. Will we be that church? Will we be that group of people? Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that you would give us a desire to submit ourselves to your Son. Got to recognize that some of us, our overwhelming desire right now is to be right. Our overwhelming desire right now is to win. We want to win in politics, we want to win in life, we want to win in culture. God, I pray that we would be satisfied knowing that you have already won in Jesus. You have called us to suffer and die, to die to self, to live for Christ. You have called us to willingly receive persecution. Blessed are you when others persecute you and revile you in my name. 
God, I pray that you would cause us to surrender our pursuits and instead to pursue Jesus. Father, I pray for those who are considering the claims of Christ, that you would win their heart unto you through your Son's shed blood, that you would secure them and hold them fast by the power of your Spirit. And Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your compassion, and for your mercy. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.